Hey everyone, welcome to this week's chapter by chapter recap with Bible Discovery and Bible Discovery TV. My name is Corey, and today we're recapping our assigned reading. Uh, we're reading through the Bible, and our assigned reading for this week was 2 Corinthians chapter 7 to Ephesians chapter 4. So we're finishing 2 Corinthians, going through the entire book of Galatians, and beginning the book of Ephesians. Lots of Pauline authorship, which is just a fancy way of saying the Apostle Paul uh, and others wrote the portions of the New Testament that we are going to be looking at today because Paul would often co-author these letters with people that were traveling and ministering with him. Okay, so 2 Corinthians chapter 7, picking up where we left off last week, Paul actually addresses in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 the result of his harsh letter uh, to the Corinthians. Uh, so, you know, he talks about how they had actually had a really good response to his letter, to the harshness and the bluntness of his last letter. The sorrow that they experienced from that letter uh, had the desired effect because it turned into earnestness and eagerness to clear themselves of this wrong, of the injustice. It turned into indignation, but like righteous indignation for them. Uh, they experienced alarm, longing, concern, and readiness to see justice done. These are the things that Paul lists here. Uh, Paul knows this because Titus had returned to Paul and Timothy. Uh, so Titus had gone to Corinth, and now he's back with a report of how that letter impacted the Corinthians, impacted the Corinthians. And so he's told them and informed them of what's been going on in Corinth. So their response to Paul's chastisement of them was deep sorrow, followed by repentance and wanting to make the situation right again. So this reaction, this response showed that the Corinthians really wanted to follow the true gospel rather than just make themselves feel good or just enjoy their lives. They really wanted to make sure they were following the actual gospel. Second Corinthians chapter eight. In this chapter, Paul encourages the Corinthians to financially give. Uh, where they're able. So he begins with how the Macedonian church was uh, giving. Uh, so he uses their financial giving as an example of the type of godliness that the Corinthians should aspire to. Then he says in verses nine, to the, the end of verse nine to the end of verse seven, messing that up, the end of verse seven to nine, he says this, See that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So Paul is talking about the kind of attitude that we should have as Christ followers, where Christ was willing to give of himself to no longer become rich for the benefit of those, for the benefit of us. So self-sacrifice, just like Christ taught in the Gospels, self-sacrifice is an indicator of true love. And when it comes to self-sacrifice in finances, um, that's relative because we all are people of different means. Uh, so 
I wanted to read you verses 13 to 14 because Paul talks about this too. He says, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. Now, this is within the church, within the body of believers. So the idea here is that this financial giving is completely voluntary because of Christ's self-sacrificial life. We then, in turn, take on a self-sacrificial love as well. We are not to command giving as Christians, just as we are not commanded to give. Rather, this is a test of our own faith. If, we're a- if we are able to give, if we are able to self-sacrifice and we're not doing that, there's something wrong that we need to deal with God about that. So uh, we're told also that uh, Titus and another man chosen uh to be in charge of the offering uh, by the churches uh, is coming to Corinth. Now, this is interesting because there's an accountability partner when it comes to finances here that, you know, there's the apostles and and, and these well-known teachers like Paul and Titus and Timothy, and they've allowed the churches to essentially nominate or elect a man to be in charge of carrying the offering from the churches. This is this is to make sure there's no funny business that's going on. It's it's a it's another witness to show that the apostles and the teachers are righteously handling the funds. So I thought that was interesting as well. Second Corinthians chapter nine, generosity is encouraged. So continuing on in this vein. Now the idea here is that generosity as a principle, as uh, in your life, uh, it creates overall good attitudes in yourself and in the people around you. It creates thanksgiving and praise to God and a really great witness. Now, I want to say here that uh, in 2 Corinthians 9 specifically, we need to remember that this generosity of giving should not be compelled. You are not commanded to give. You should not be commanded to give by teachers or preachers or anything like that. You also should not begrudgingly give, like, I really don't want to give this offering, but I guess I have to, to be a good Christian, to stay in the club. That's not right either. That's not the idea. Offerings to God, financial offerings, should be given out of love to God and the work of the ministry and people who need it. Uh, It should be given in thanks to God for his blessings in your life, his spiritual blessings and his physical blessings. And it should be given out of obedience to God because this is one of our proper acts of worship. Just as Christ self-sacrificed for us, we now self-sacrifice for the body of Christ. Not because we want something in return. So this area of scripture where it talks about, you know, sowing and reaping, this has classically become an example of how a biblical truth or truth in general can be wielded as a weapon of evil, right? So we must not misuse the scriptures either in our own lives or in our churches. We just cannot do this. This is irresponsible and we will be held accountable at the judgment seat of Christ for how we interact with the world and how we use the word of God. 
It is not appropriate to tell someone that if they donate to a certain ministry, they will experience financial blessings. That is not an appropriate thing. We are not God. We don't know what God's blessings to someone else is going to be, and we should not promise that. Uh, we should not misuse uh, the concepts of biblical giving because giving, biblical giving, Christian giving is not about getting. It's about giving. <laughs> it fosters attitudes of thanksgiving and humility and obedience in our lives. Okay, enough on that. Let's move on. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul here launches into a defense of his ministry because of the people who had come into Corinth trying to discredit Paul. So there's teachers coming in and being like, ah, eh, he's not all that great. Uh, specifically, the accusation in this chapter that Paul confronts is that he's nice and timid and gentle and overall unimpressive in person. But then when he's writing letters to them, when he's not actually there, he's bold and the words that he writes are weighty and important. So there's this hypocrisy here. Paul's response is that he's bold in his letters because he's responding to topics that require boldness and harsh correction of the Corinthians. And that he's writing this way in hopes that when he actually visits in person, these behaviors, these sins will already be corrected by the time he gets there so that he can be gentle and, uh, you know, just a, a nice person to be around when he's there and not having to correct all of the indiscretions. Paul also talks about arguments and arguments and pretensions. So arguments in the way of like, not, not like fighting between one another necessarily, but lines of reasoning, okay, as strongholds. So these lines of, lines of reasoning that we build against God, against good theology, against a proper understanding of God and the gospel are like enemy strongholds in warfare. Uh, so they're like forts that the enemy has built in our territory in order to gain more ground and take more of our territory. So the idea is that we need to demolish these argumentations against God, these lines of reasoning that are impeding our good understanding of God, and take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. So there is a war going on in our minds and in our lives that are causing us to doubt or live life away from God. And we need to correct that. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is worried that these so-called apostles, these false teachers, will succeed in deceiving the Corinthian church into accepting an altered gospel, a different gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So then Paul explains why he did not and does not want to make a big deal out of his leadership and why he specifically at Corinth did not accept financial support from the Corinthian church while he was with them. Uh, and while he was with them, he was accepting financial support from the Macedonian Christians. Uh, so he talks about that. He talks about all of the persecutions and difficulties that he's experienced this far in his life 
spreading the gospel and it's quite significant uh, and the whole point of him going into that was that it's not about his strength because he doesn't have a lot of strength he doesn't have a lot of clout it's not about that it's about God's strength and the power of the gospel second Corinthians chapter 12 talks about Paul talks about people who have had interesting visions and how Paul has um, he has a physical problem, a thorn in his flesh uh, that ha- has humbled him. You know, it's a recurring physical problem and God will not heal it. Even though Paul is an apostle and he has healed others through the power of God, you know, signs and wonders and miracles. He has done all of these things in the name of God. However, God allows him to have this infirmity, right, this physical problem to remind him all the time that it's not because of Paul's vision, uh, Paul's strength, sorry, or his greatness that visions come or that miracles happen or that people get saved, but rather it's about God. Uh, Paul also lets the Corinthians know that he's worried to come back to Corinth because he's, he, he's worried that he's going to see unrepentant sin when he gets there. Last chapter here in 2 Corinthians is chapter 13, and this is Paul's second warning. Um, and his visit to Corinth is going to come, he is going to uh, bring his last, his third and final warning before he deals with the sin extremely harshly. Uh, he says this in verse 5, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. This is good advice. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Self-reflection upon our lives is absolutely necessary for a successful Christian life. Okay, we're going to move on to Galatians now. Galatians chapter 1. This letter is written from Paul to the churches in the Roman province of Galatia. So while Corinth was written to a specific city, this is kind of generally written to the province of Galatia and likely to churches that, to cities that Paul has visited on his previous missionary journeys recorded back in Acts to several of the cities in the province of Galatia. So this is all to them. So Galatia was also experiencing an influx of these false teachers. Uh, And Paul is saying that these false teachers are actually confusing the Christians. And we're going to find out as we continue to read Galatians how they're being confused. What is it that's confusing them? Paul then gives an account in Galatians chapter 1 of how he became an apostle. And he specifically emphasizes that he was called by God, not by other men. And he was called unusually. His life was completely changed. Galatians chapter 2 continues the account of Paul's ministry and what he did when he became a Christian. Uh, We learn that Paul was accepted by all of the apostles. He names James, Peter, and John. we get an account of, interestingly, we get an account of a time where the apostle Peter comes to Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas are teaching. That's kind of their home base, is the city of Antioch. And Paul actually has to confront Peter because Peter began to separate himself from the Gentile Christians again. So here is the problem. We have arrived at the problem in Galatians. 
do Gentiles also have to follow the Mosaic law to be Christians? Now, we've already dealt with this issue already in the New Testament, but uh, Peter, remember Peter's own vision uh, in Acts chapter 10, and then how the Holy Spirit descended and filled uh, Cornelius and the members of his household who believed uh, in Acts chapter 10 and 11. And this proves that no, um, even Gentiles who do not follow the Mosaic law can be Christians. They are not required uh, to follow the law. So this is why Peter's actions in Antioch are hypocritical, because he knows that Gentiles are perfectly acceptable to God, and yet he's withdrawing from them uh, in order to please certain um, elements of the population who think that they should. So we should note here that this places the writing of Galatians just before the Jerusalem Council that is recorded in Acts chapter 15, where they all go to Jerusalem and they meet up and they hash this issue out, okay, to create an official position on the matter. Galatians chapter 3 begins with a very famous line. We're going to read verses 1 to the beginning of verse 4. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? Okay, so Paul then explains that the Galatian Christians and Christians in general, uh, Gentile Christians in general, are children of Abraham, not through the covenant of circumcision, not through the Mosaic law, but because Abraham believed and it was credited to, credited to him as righteousness. So Gentiles are children of Abraham, children of that promise, children of God, uh, not through circumcision, but through faith in Christ. So Paul goes on to explain that Christ fulfilled the law. So when we come to Christ, we put on, we adopt his righteousness. We have all become heirs of the promise of salvation equally. And this is where that other famous verse, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, right? But we are all in Christ Jesus. That's where this comes from. Galatians chapter 4 talks about how we have been redeemed. Redeemed. This means bought. As in, if you were buying the freedom of a slave, okay? Uh, so we have been redeemed from the law, the law of God, and we have become adopted as sons of God. So Paul goes on, he's like, you've been freed. Why would you want to become enslaved again? He then talks about Hagar and Sarah, the uh, Sarah, of course, being the wife of Abraham and Hagar being the surrogate. Uh, you know, when Abraham and Sarah were getting impatient with the promise of God, they gave Hagar to Abraham to be a surrogate mother. And the idea was that Sarah would adopt the child. This was a Old Testament practice in the time of the Old Testament. It was pretty common. And he talks about Hagar and Sarah figuratively representing the law of God and the promise of God. And the ultimate goal is that we need to be children of the promise, not children of the law. Galatians chapter 5. All right. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
all right? Christ has set us free in order to be free from the law. So don't go back to it. Don't go back to what God has freed you from. Paul goes on to speak very bluntly. If you follow the law of Moses, you abandon Christ. This is a very dangerous thing to rely on your own works for salvation or for righteousness because it doesn't work. None of us can follow the law perfectly. None of us can work our way into heaven only through faith in Christ. Paul then deals with a seemingly obvious loophole here and probably one that these false teachers were harping on. They were saying, you know, freedom, if you have freedom from the law, it just means you're going to live like sinners. You're just going to live terribly and just do all the things that the law says not to do. So Paul says this, you are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh flesh rather serve what serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command love your neighbor as yourself uh, Paul then goes into what it means to walk by the spirit and there's a list of acts of the flesh which are bad things uh, and then we're given the fruit or the result of living by the spirit uh, which are the fruits of the spirit so love joy peace patience kindness gentleness uh, goodness faithfulness and self-control so all these really nice things Galatians chapter 6. This is the last chapter of Galatians. Uh, Paul talks about how we need to help people caught in sin, but be very careful while we're doing it because the temptation will be for us to also sin, either to join the sin or sin while we're trying to help them sin. He talks about not being arrogant, uh, not being, but also not being deceived, that a man does reap what he sows, Whoever sows to please their flesh, so whoever lives to sin uh, and to, to live in a way that does not honor God, from that he will reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the Spirit, so to please God, to live well, will reap eternal life. Paul then exposes the true motive behind these teachers or what he believes to be the true motive behind these teachers trying to get the Christians to follow the law. He, he says, you know, they don't even follow the law, if they're being honest. They want circumcision. They want everyone, all Christians, to be circumcised in the flesh so that they can talk about how they're circumcised and therefore avoid persecution. In other words, like, we're still Jewish too, guys, right? Because you have to remember that at that time in the world, Judaism was an accepted, it was a, it was a tolerated religion within the Roman Empire, but as Christianity was growing and and becoming very distinguished uh very different from judaism difficulties were beginning to arise and that understandably upset and scared several people um nevertheless these false teachers were causing genuine confusion over the gospel uh you know whether christians truly did have to follow the law and there's a resounding all through the new testament a resounding no gentiles do not and in fact should not follow the law of moses okay now we are finished galatians and we're just going to look at the first four chapters of ephesians here we go Ephesians. This is another letter from Paul, uh, and he's writing it to the Christian 
Christians who live in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a major Roman city. Uh, I just did a segment on it on the show, actually. It's, I, I love studying Ephesus. It's, I really would love to visit it. I haven't had an opportunity to visit it in person, but it's one of the coolest archaeological sites going today. All right, so in Paul's introduction, he talks about God's plan of salvation and how Christians experience the amazing blessings of God's forgiveness and his redemption. Uh, he talks about how he continuously gives thanks for the Christians at Ephesus, and he prays that they'd know God even more. And of course, he does this with a lot more flourish than I just gave it. I mean, of course, it's Paul. Uh, but then he goes on to talk about how Christ was raised to the right hand of God the Father and given all power and authority. And he is now head of the church, the body of the church. So he goes into that. Ephesians chapter 2. Now that he's talked about Christ, Paul switches his attention to his audience. As for you, Christians, you were once dead, but now you're alive. You were dead like those people who are living in the world, everyone around you, but now you're alive. So verse 5 says this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in, our transgress in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Paul then talks about how God has raised us up to be with Jesus in heaven, and we will see his grace and kindness in the ages to come. There's an emphasis then on how salvation is attained and uh, how works fit into all of it. So listen to this. <clears throat> For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So in other words, we Christians, we have been remade, reborn, right? Born again. So God has a plan for us. He has a purpose for us, and it's to do good works. These good works are the result of us being reborn, of us being remade, not the cause of it. So we don't do really good righteous things and God's like, hey, you deserve to be reborn. No, the rebirth comes first and then the good works follow as a result of being reborn. And of course, we're not perfect. That's talked about elsewhere. Uh, but this is just, this is the way that it happens. So, Paul also talks about how Christ's work has also served to destroy the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. So remember, Jews and Gentiles, especially in the first century Roman Empire, lived drastically different lifestyles. Jews uh, lived according to the Mosaic Law and according to the traditions, that the, the laws that the rabbis made for them to follow the law as well. So a very strict, you know, culture that they were living by. Gentiles? No, they were just living by the world standards generally. So there's this natural hostility. But Paul's saying Christian Jews and Gentiles are all saved the exact same way. We access God through Jesus Christ. So in this way, in salvation, there is no more Jew or Gentile. We are all in Christ. 
Ephesians chapter 3 carries on this thought. The Gentiles are now heirs together with Israel of God's kingdom. And again, this is through Christ. Believers are one body. It's not Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. It's just Christians. And neither one is better than the other. Uh, Paul then records uh, what he's praying for the Ephesian Christians, which is interesting. Okay, Ephesians chapter four, I wanna read you verses one to three here. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Ah, oh, he's always gotta bust out these really hard things to do after saying nice things. like how we're equal and it's Christ's righteousness, then there's stuff that we still got to do not to attain salvation, but just to be honest Christ followers. A goal of our lives as Christ followers is to become mature in Christ and united. Uh, and Paul contrasts this maturity and this unity with immaturity being tossed immaturity is talked about as being tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and blown there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming so if you're not mature in christ you're going to fall for the false teachers who are taking the truth slightly modifying it and then you're get you're getting led down a path that's taking you away from the true gospel so it's a dangerous thing to stay immature in your christianity uh, paul then gives instructions for Christian living. Uh, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. So he distinguishes Christian Gentiles from regular Gentiles, right? You used to just live like the Gentiles, but now you are called to a different lifestyle. You don't have to follow the Mosaic law, but you're still called to a different set of morality here. You're called to God's morality. So you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. This is hard for us because there are so many intelligent people in the non-Christian community. Uh, and and non-Christians can be incredibly moral beings, especially according to this world, right? But Nevertheless, they don't have the understanding of God. Their understanding is darkened, right? And their consciences are hardened. So we are required to live by God's standards, not by man's standards, even when man's standards, man's standards attain a high level of morality. Okay, uh, what follows in Ephesians is highlighted or underlined, I think, in every Bible that I have ever owned in my life from childhood until now. There is a practical list uh, of ways to follow Christ. Uh, see, I'll prove it, right? Right there, and it goes, it goes on to there. I would highly recommend that you read it. Uh, it's highlighted because I definitely do not attain it. And so I highlight it because I read it often. Uh, you know, it says so many things. The one thing that gets me really bad and really good at the same time is verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome, unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit 
those who listen. Hmm. That, that is so hard to attain. Um, there's just some really good, really good stuff in there that I would, if you haven't had a chance to read Ephesians 4 this week, this is the section that I would highly recommend that you read. It is humbling. It's something that I think we should take time and meditate on and pray over. Because if we all lived like this, the world would be an insanely different place, let alone the church. You know, the church would be so different. The world would be so different. Ugh, it's amazing. Okay, guys, let me know how your reading is coming down in the comments below. And I will talk to you later.